the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine. This is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope Colored Glasses. My name is Greg, and this is episode 0.3. Career Day. Judges, Threshers, and an Odd Job. In this episode... We'll continue our tour through the Old Testament as the third part of our world-building series meant to help explain Catholic Christianity and the stories and cultures that left their mark on it before we start wearing our Pope-colored glasses to look at history. Feel free to skip ahead if you already know the difference between a chalice and a silice, unless you're an early adopter and there's nothing to skip ahead to. As a reminder, just because we're talking Bible doesn't mean this content is appropriate for all ages. This episode in particular covers the Book of Judges, the least family-friendly book in the Bible. It includes rape, murder, and more. I aim to keep it PG, but that's the best I can do in this episode. As an additional reminder that's probably getting familiar, this is in no way a careful or comprehensive summary. It is also not carried out with much reverence. There are many careful, comprehensive, and reverent summaries of these stories available for free. Rather, This tour is meant to be a way to help get everyone on more or less the same page before we start wearing around our Pope-colored glasses. I'm going to fail to cover a lot, including failing to reflect in any meaningful way on the significance these stories have outside this podcast's narrowly defined lens of Christianity, specifically Catholic Christianity. Without further ado, let's dive in. The Book of Judges Ladies and gentlemen, we've arrived sound cue for airline ding, at the Promised Land. The early military successes under Joshua helped the Israelites begin to make their home, but there are still plenty of other tribes contending. And make no mistake, this is an ancient history narrative of a world that isn't peaceful, and it's also one where individuals aren't generally the focus. There are exceptions. There are great men, to borrow a phrase to describe the approach to history that centers on leaders. The leaders that appear at this stage are elevated by God from among the Israelites. They're known as judges, hence the name of the book, even though with one exception, they aren't shown making legal decisions, instead serving as military leaders. Honestly, they're pretty close to our modern concept of superheroes. There's no monarchy or pool of candidates particularly visible. Rather, they emerge, fight the threat, and bring back peace. After that, there's a period of peace, but then the judge dies, and eventually things fall apart, and the people turn away from God, and then suddenly all is going to pot, and there's a need for another hero, who dutifully received what's described as the Spirit of the Lord, and then proceeds to beat the crap out of the enemy du jour, restoring peace for a span until the people get lax and turn from God again. Frankly, for our purposes, most of the various judges aren't too critical. They fight against the various tribes that were occupying the Promised Land and the surrounding territory, and the narrative goes through the cycle they've already outlined as the years pass. I do want to mention that they aren't actually all great men. The fourth judge is Deborah, who doesn't lead troops herself, 
but who serves as a prophetess, guiding the military commanders to victory by relaying God's instructions. She also is that one judge I mentioned who is shown judging in the legal sense, holding court under a palm tree. While we're at it, perhaps the most famous story from Deborah's judgeship features another heroine, Jael. Deborah's chosen general had defeated the Canaanites, but the Canaanite general Sisera had gotten away. However, he ended up picking the wrong place to take refuge, ending up staying with an Israelite sympathizer, Jael. Jael gives the exhausted Sisera, losing and fleeing has to suck, a tent peg to the head, with enough ferocity that the peg got stuck in the floor beneath. Welcome to the Book of Judges. By the way, the song Deborah sings upon hearing about this is apparently a strong contender for one of the oldest passages in the Bible given the archaic Hebrew used. The song Moses' sister Miriam sings after the escape from Egypt crossing the Red Sea is another contender for the same reason, though there are some who question whether these songs were just made to sound old-timey when they were made up later to make them seem like period pieces. When it comes to Bible debates, well, it's never unanimous. You pays your money and you takes your choice. In case you're wondering, another candidate is the notoriously difficult-to-date Book of Job, written in some pretty unusual Hebrew, and with perhaps the most distinct theology in the entire Old Testament. More on that later. Another memorable story from the Book of Judges is the assassination of the Moabite king Eglon at the hand of Judge Ehud. Ehud got Eglon alone with the classic, I have a super secret message for you so clear the room, and proceeded to stab him. Now, Eglon was very fat, and we're told the sword went in, handle and all, and Ehud couldn't get it back out again on account of all the fat. Classic Book of Judges material that, yes, I've seen covered in children's editions of the Bible. And in Lego form, too. But by far, the most famous judge of the dozen or so judges, weighing in at a beefy half-verse on the Cohen scale, is Samson. So let's take a good look at his story. His fame is probably helped by the fact that he's got a more complete story than the other judges, with everything from an origin story to romantic interests to a dramatic finale. Now, Samson's destiny was set even before his birth. His mother had difficulty conceiving and prayed about it. Then an angel, that is a heavenly messenger, told her that she would have a son, and that he would deliver the Israelites from the hands of the narrative villain du jour, the Philistines. The key to his powers was to be his status as a Nazarite, which is a special vowed lifestyle requiring abstention from alcohol and, importantly, uncut hair. The Nazarite vow and lifestyle was actually originally described in the Book of Numbers, but I skipped over it last episode, so sue me. It'll actually come again, making it a sneakily important concept. Anyways, Samson was raised as a Nazarite from birth, and from a young age, he would have known of his destiny of liberating the Israelites from the Philistines. Which makes it all the more interesting that one of the first grown-up things we see Samson do is get engaged to a Philistine woman from a place called Timnah over the predictable objections of his parents. Now, apparently, this is Samson playing four-dimensional chess at God's orders. It turns out that the whole marriage thing is basically a sham to give a pretense to have Samson go after the Philistines. Quote, His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. End quote. 
Now, personally, I'd think there were better ways to start quibbling with the Philistines than setting up a sham marriage. But hey, what do I know? Also, it's worth noting that this isn't even the only time God leads someone into a questionable marriage. Later, he has the prophet Hosea marry, quote, a promiscuous woman, end quote, to drive home the point that the people of Israel, who were then straying from him, were like an adulterer's wife. And that's honestly all you need to know about the minor prophet Hosea, so we'll skip him later. Anyways, back to Samson. My four-dimensional chess comment about Samson was actually pretty tongue-in-cheek, because judging by his riddle-making skills, Samson was a bit of a thicky. You see, on his way to a date with the woman of Timnah, whom the Bible goes to extraordinary lengths to not name, he's attacked by a lion that he, uh, let me check my notes, tears apart with his bare hands after the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, judge style. There's a decent chance that if you've heard anything about Samson, you've heard about his strength. And it's not for nothing that he's sometimes seen in heroic parallel as a sort of Hebrew Hercules. Anyways, after a while, Samson comes across the remains of that lion and finds some bees have made a hive in it, which proved the basis for a riddle so crappy it really makes one question whether Samson had actually understood the concept of a riddle. Quote, Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. End quote. This dumb riddle is what Samson wagered some of his new in-laws the Philistines over. If they could guess the answer within the week, he'd owe them 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If they couldn't, they'd owe him the same. Now, because the riddle was dumb, the Philistines were hard-pressed to come up with an answer, so they leaned on their kid's woman, Samson's new wife, still painfully unnamed. She, in turn, leaned on Samson and got the answer out of him, which she dutifully passed along, presumably with a fair amount of frustration at how crappy all of this goes for her. Speaking of being crappy towards unnamed female, Samson's response when the Philistines gave the right answer, quote, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle, end quote. And yes, it's true, Samson. Your riddle was unsolvable. Because it was an anecdote, not a bloody riddle. And oh, would that misogynistic words were Samson's only response to being bested. But no, this is where the pieces really start going in the old 4D chess game. Because to get 30 sets of clothing to pay on his lost bet, Samson murders 30 people, like you do. He strips their corpses naked and hands over their, if the line is any indication, presumably blood-soaked garments as payment. As a reminder, Samson is the hero of this overall story, which is often told in Sunday schools in abbreviated and somewhat sanitized form. Now we're officially into some of the truly dark stuff in the Book of Judges. There was a fair amount I skimmed over before coming from the stories of the other judges, and honestly, to keep this show somewhat family-friendly, I'm tempted to skip ahead, but it seems right to give you the full flavor of Judges in Samsonite form while we're here. Consider yourself warned that you might want to skip ahead six minutes or so if you don't enjoy Criminal Minds Bible Edition. With that out of the way, why don't we let Samson torture several hundred foxes in what's arguably his most clever, albeit evil, move? You see, after the whole killing 30 people because he was mad he lost a crappy bet over an awful quote-unquote riddle thing, unnamed Timnite slash Philistine woman's father decided maybe his little nameless princess should have 
well, a different husband. So she gets rehitched to one of the bet winners, which seems straightforward until he immediately turns around and offers another one of his daughters to Samson when he shows up asking to see his former wife, at which point you're reminded that, man, these old Bible stories sure did take place in a different culture. In any case, understandably, this divorce by parent didn't sit well with Samson, though we get no word on what nameless woman thought. Less understandably, he decides that the proper course of action is to catch 300 foxes, tie them tail to tail in pairs, attach lit torches to said tails, and let them loose on the countryside, destroying the Philistines' crops. In return for this, the Philistines burn Nameless and her father to death, which, like every other turn in this story, sucks for them, and which also ticks off Samson further. He then, quote, attacked them vigorously and slaughtered many of them, end quote. Now, since we know violence begets violence, it probably isn't surprising that before long the Philistines came after Samson to, quote, do him as he did to us, end quote. They approach the Israelites and demand that Samson be handed over to them. The Israelites oblige, and Samson proceeds to kill a thousand Philistines using a donkey's jawbone, which I might as well describe as the jawbone of an ass, another common translation which is probably more technically correct, or else it wouldn't have made it into as many official translations as it has, given its sounding vaguely naughty vibe. I can assure you it gave grade school me some chuckles. Anyone who wants to weigh in on the donkey-slash-ass distinction or has anything else they want to bring to my attention, feedback included, can of course email popularhistory at gmail.com, that's popular with an E, you know the drill, and there's your email plug for the show. After killing a thousand people, Samson is thirsty. So he whines to God, quote, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? End quote. In response, our friend, the very hands-on Adonai, makes a new spring appear. Samson drinks, and all is well. Until, whoops, one day in Gaza, Samson is a different kind of thirsty. He hooks up with a prostitute, and while he's so occupied, the people of Gaza, being understandably anti-Samson, literal Philistines, make plans to ambush him in the morning at the city gates. But Samson doesn't wait till morning. Presumably wanting to cut out on the walk of shame or something, he gets up in the middle of the night and takes the city gates, hinges and frame and all, with him to, quote, the top of the hill that faces Hebron, end quote. Now, before you laugh at my pronunciation, there's a town called Hebron not far from here, and it's spelled the same in everything, so I know how to pronounce it, since Midwestern settlements named after the Old World always preserve the original pronunciation, even if the Old World strays. Just ask the good citizens of Versailles, Ohio. The Gaza Gate incident, or as I like to call it, Gaza Gate Gate, doesn't look to have much of a point beyond Samson is really strong, and possibly Samson and the Philistines weren't friends. But really, that's the flavor of Samson's whole narrative arc, so I figured I might as well leave it in. That, and it's inspired some pretty cool artwork over the years. If there's a third theme in the Samson narrative, it's that Samson has a weakness for women that gets him into trouble. Now, Samson's gotten out of said trouble pretty easily so far, it's not even clear he noticed there were assassins waiting for him at the gates of Gaza. He might have just wanted to tear off the city gates and carry them around for fun. 
I mean, he probably noticed, and it was an intimidation thing? I don't know. In any case, it's time for Samson to meet his biggest challenge yet. One who isn't so easily overcome. Delilah. It's not clear that Delilah was a Philistine herself, unlike Samson's unnamed first wife, who I guess we'll call Mrs. Samson. And actually, calling nameless first wife is a bit misleading here, since even though his relationship with Delilah is the most famous Samson arc in popular culture, up to and including the lyrics to David Cohen's Hallelujah, by the way, the two were never married. And it's actually not even clear they sealed the deal, as it were. Um, deal sealed or not, it's clear Samson had a thing for Delilah. And whether she felt the same or not, it's certainly clear that she knew it and was willing to use it. Urged on and financially motivated by the Philistines, Delilah makes it her mission to discover the source of Samson's strength. She's actually pretty straightforward about it, telling Samson, and I quote, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. End quote. Now, to his credit, despite my ragging on his intelligence, Samson decides that the best course of action is to lie, saying he'll lose his famous strength if he's tied with seven fresh bowstrings that haven't dried. I guess drying is the final portion of the bowstring making process. She ties him up accordingly, Philistines at the ready, but when she wakes him up and tells him to get ready for a fight, he tears through those bowstrings. Piece of cake. Delilah apparently had some serious cojones because her next tactic is to chide Samson for lying to her and ask again. Samson lies again. Delilah tries out his recommendation again, tie him up with new ropes that have never been used, and she sees it doesn't work. Then she chides him for lying again. Rinse and repeat, this time weaving his seven braids of long hair into fabric on a loom and tying it down with the pin, which also doesn't work. Now, I don't know if the next part is due to Samson being a true horn dog or to him truly being thick as a brick, but the fourth time, Samson actually caves and spills the beans. Now, frankly, given that his most notable feature, apart from his incredible strength, is having seven braids of magnificent hair, his enemies probably could have guessed this if they'd put their heads into it, but since Samson's strength is connected to his Nazarite vow, which involved, along with the alcohol thing, not shaving or cutting his hair, Samson reveals that the real deal way to make him lose his super strength is to cut his hair. Surprise, surprise, Delilah tries this out too, and wouldn't you know it, it actually works. The degree to which Samson voluntarily screwed himself on this one, despite the extremely clear situation, is remarkable, and it would be more funny if we weren't told in the next verse that the Philistines proceeded to gouge out his eyes before taking him to Gaza. Ouch. She tied you to a kitchen chair, she broke your throne, she cut your hair, and from your lips she drew the hallelujah. Yet the verse after that, in the Book of Judges I mean, not the Book of Cohen, turns again and hints at Samson's final triumph, noting that Samson's hair was already starting to grow back. At Gaza, Samson is chained up and put to work grinding grain. But this is no ordinary slave. This is freaking Samson. So they soon set up a massive celebration, with Samson performing as the star attraction and 3,000 guests in attendance at the temple. Samson asks to be guided to the pillars supporting the temple, ostensibly to have something to lean on since he's tired. He then prays for strength, specifically to avenge his eyes. His prayer is heard, and he brings the whole place down, 
killing himself and thousands, even more than he had killed in his whole life up till then, we're told. Samson's final act comes up in Catholic intellectual discussions on suicide, since it was darn close to a form of suicide, and one sanctioned by God, no less, since it was God answering Samson's prayer that gave him the strength to carry it out. In the end, as best I understand, it's generally seen as the form of the principle of double effect, which is where a bad effect, in this case Samson's own death, happens as an unintended, though possibly foreseen, consequence of what he had actually intended. Then again, it's frankly hard to see the death of 3,000, including children, as a good thing to intend, either. And believe it or not, Judges isn't quite done with us yet, either. The last story I want to cover is possibly the most brutal, and near the beginning, like several of these stories in fact, it has the scene-setting observation that, quote, in those days there was no king in Israel, end quote. The scholars seem to agree that this was to emphasize how lawless things were without that king role being fulfilled. Spoiler alert, by the time these stories were written down, there was a king in Israel. We're told of a weary traveler arriving in the town of Gibeah in the land of the tribe of Benjamin, accompanied by his concubine and his servant. They have difficulty finding anyone who will take them in for the night until they meet an old man who agrees to take them in. The story quickly goes in a Sodom and Gomorrah direction, so much so that it seems quite likely that the two narratives are related, though since this is Judges, it manages to go a step or two further. If you skip ahead for anything, you'll want to skip ahead past this. You have been warned. The old man, lodging the out-of-towner, soon has a knock on his door. A group of, quote, wicked men of the city, end quote, were there to demand he hand over his guests so they could have sex with him. As a compromise, the old host offers his guest's concubine instead, along with his own virgin daughter. The daughter appears to luck out and isn't mentioned again. It seems only the concubine was raped for hours into the night, eventually making her way back to the house and apparently dying at the threshold from her traumatic injuries. In the morning, when her body is discovered, it actually gets even darker, as her husband decided that the right course of action was to cut her limb from limb into twelve parts, and then to send those parts to all the twelve tribes of Israel, presumably along with some kind of message, since all the recipients understood what had happened well enough to gather together and get the full scoop from the husband, who happened to be a Levite, a reminder that the tribe of Levi was the sort of priestly class that would eventually be focused on the temple, though it wasn't built yet at this time, Levi had been a son of Israel, but the Levites didn't get a separate land allotment. Instead, Joseph's two sons each got a share. In the end, twelve sons and twelve shares, and a bit of a confusing relationship between the two, but I digress. Anyways, the poor dismembered woman's husband walked through what had happened, and got those assembled, 400,000 were told, though yes, between you and I, I, I do think that that number sounds pretty high. Anyways, the crowd agrees to march on Gebeah to, quote, give them what they deserve, end quote. Things escalate because the tribe of Benjamin refuses to just hand over Gebeah and all its residents. The Benjaminites muster an army of almost 27,000, including the delightful detail of, quote, 700 select troops who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss, end quote. A detail made all the more interesting that Benjamin literally means son of my right hand. Eh, well, 
Interesting may be a stretch, but there you have it anyways. These crack lefties and their mates had their work cut out for them, since the combined force of the other tribes of Israel was well over ten times larger, numbering, quote, 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fit for battle, end quote. After some victories for the Benjaminites, things go as you'd expect, and the tribe of Benjamin is crushed. The narrative shifts when, in their anger, the other Israelites swear not to allow any of their daughters to marry a Benjaminite, then realize that all of the Benjaminite wives are dead, and frankly, it's not clear how that happened, so they go wife hunting for them on the Benjaminites' behalf from among those who didn't report for Benjaminite hunting duty as promised. But that only solves a fraction of the problem, so they go wife hunting for the Benjaminites from among the women of Shiloh during the festival. It's a wild finish, even by judges' standards, as the Israelites scramble across the Near East in order to make sure that the tribe of Benjamin isn't completely wiped out. The Book of Ruth Now, if you're wondering what stories from the time of Judges would look like if someone hadn't left a gore filter on, this is actually an example. Allow me to introduce you to, yes, the Book of Ruth, which is basically a rather agricultural romance. Ruth is short. So short, in fact, that I nearly plan to just read it all in here with a bit of color commentary. But really, if you know that it's about the titular Ruth trying to get married to Boaz, that is, her dead husband's next of kin, then you've got the gist. She succeeds, by the way, and the very end of the book reveals that one of her descendants down the road is a man named David, who will go down in history as one of the first kings of Israel. Which is somewhat interesting, since Ruth is a Moabite, and Moabites are definitely not typically viewed positively. We'll get to David fairly soon at this point, but first, we've got a book of Job to do. The Book of Job. Job, rather. The Book of Job. Now, Job is our first real foray outside Bible text focused on telling history. Can you hear the air quotes? But it won't be our last because several of the books of the Bible tell stories that are well-known and culturally important, even though their chronology is uncertain or unimportant for our purposes. But to help things make sense for you all, I'm going to use their chronological place as best I can, rather than sticking to their place in the traditional order of the books of the Bible. Of course, I've already missed the most popular time slot for the story of Job, since he's most often associated more with the time of our old friend Abraham than this Moses and Judges stuff. There are several reasons for that, including the use of some pretty archaic, old-timey Hebrew to tell the story. But just because they use the Hebrew equivalent of these and thous doesn't prove Job is an old story. It could just be a style choice. One of the other clues is more interesting for our purposes anyways the sheer weirdness of it. Job really is an odd Bible book in terms of the theology and worldview of it, giving me the opportunity for the bad pun in this episode's title, since Job is spelled J-O-B, despite it being pronounced... Okay, the odd job gag isn't as funny if I literally spell it out for you, especially since it was a groaner in the first place. Let's forget I went down that track, and let's talk about Satan, because honestly, he's the main reason we're here. You see, Satan... Hasatan, the adversary, appears in Job as an entity more or less just chilling with God in the introduction. They're apparently just hanging. I like to imagine a few celestial cold ones when God decides to brag about his loyal servant Job. Satan then suggests that maybe Job wouldn't be so loyal if he weren't so blessed, and God agrees to a little experiment where Satan's allowed to screw over Job, sparing only his health, to see if he can get him to curse God. This doesn't work. 
and God signs off on taking things to the next level, covering Job with boils and generally not sparing his health. Job still refuses to curse God, though he's certainly wondering why he's getting such a raw deal, and he asks God for an explanation, at which point God basically points out that he's beyond Job's understanding, so Job should just deal with it, which Job does, and he's rewarded with more stuff than the wealth he had at the beginning of the story. All's well that ends well, though really the bro bet between God and Satan is definitely one of the crazier plots in the Bible, though certainly not without its competition. What's so interesting about Satan's role in all of this is that he's definitely not presented as an all-evil, crazed being cursed by God seeking to draw everyone else away from God. That's his most familiar role in general Christian understanding. I mean, clearly, Job abandoning God would be a win for Satan in this story, but it's not like Satan and God have their familiar adversarial role in this text. It really does read like they're cosmic drinking buddies, like Satan has his function within God's plan instead of being counter to it like he's generally presented. And now it's time to talk about how Satan's generally presented. We met him once before, in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, in the form of the serpent that leads Eve to sin. And we'll see him again in the New Testament, tempting Jesus in the desert, offering him all sorts of fabulous prizes if he abandons God and worships him. Which, when you think about it, from a Jesus-is-God perspective, that's a pretty ballsy move. He shows up also in apocalyptic literature, like the beast-slash-dragon in the book of Revelation, and also outside the Bible, all over the place in Christian circles, as the enemy of God, one who seeks to draw people away. Satan, coming from Hasatan, meaning adversary, is probably his most famous name, but Lucifer, her light-bearer, lifted from a passing reference in the book of Isaiah, is probably a close second. Satan's also got his crew. God has his angels. Satan has his demons. Both are immaterial but nonetheless influential beings that more or less go around running errands for their respective chosen master. Ultimately, the goal of Satan and his demons is to keep you, dear listener, from making your way to heaven, ending up in hell instead, that miserable place of eternal separation from God. The goal of God and his angels, meanwhile, is to get you to heaven, that blissful, permanent union with God, possible by means of, and this particular wrinkle is particularly Catholic, the cleansing fire of purgatory, where you suffer for a while to remove sins you never atone for in life, which temporarily keep you from entering heaven, but which aren't so bad that they land you in hell. Not gonna lie, if I'm gonna single out one Catholic teaching that I struggle with at this point, it's purgatory. But there you have it. It's not a middle road between heaven and hell, nor is it a third option kind of destination. Rather, purgatory is one of two paths to get to heaven, the other being dying free of all sin and attachment to sin, and therefore waltzing straight in. Generally, let's just say most Catholics expect some time in purgatory is in their future. While we're on the topic, I'll note that prayers and good works can be done by the living and are understood to be able to help cut down on purgatory time for the deceased. So, praying for the souls in purgatory is a pious way to do a solid for the recently deceased. And yes, absolutely, we'll talk about the whole purgatory controversy later on when that comes up as we look at the Protestant Reformation. Alright, let's move on from this purgatory of a cosmic discussion into the heaven that's whatever you're doing after this podcast, because it is time to wrap up this mess of an episode. Before we do, though, I really should note that most of Job 
takes the form of Job going back and forth in speeches with his friends, who are all convinced that he brought all the crap God flings at him onto himself, while Job knows that this isn't the case. It's not super important that you know that, except insofar as I'll look bad if I tell you about Job but leave off that basic formatting. So with that awkward housekeeping detail shoehorned in, let's call it a day. Before we go, I'm going to recommend a collaboration. In Sidetrack episode 65 of Stephen Guerrero's History of the Papacy, he discusses the book of Job along with Gary Stevens of the History in the Bible podcast and Ben Jacobs of the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast. Their collective take was helpful for this episode, and not only that collaboration, but their respective podcasts are all worth a listen. Thanks as always to our sound technician, Billy, for the theme and for his continued support. Thank you, Russ, for our logo. Thank you as well to the ever-patient and helpful Vice Pope Mrs. Popular History. Tune in next time for episode 0.4, The House of David. <laughs>